John. Yes. We've got provisions mm-hmm. in lots of beer. No, always. Shall we begin? We shall. Hello, Baton Rouge. Yes, yes. We do. Uh, we, we have to ask our guest to please turn his radio down because uh, you need to respect the seven-second delay that we use from the foot of Melt Belzoni. There, I think I got them all in. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, uh, you're going to have to give another listen to the album. Uh, yeah, right, I know what you're talking knows. about. Yep. We, yes, we are talking about The Nightfly, of course. We are going to do a deep dive into the album, but we are not going to do it alone. We are going to welcome one of our longtime listeners, uh, current supporters, uh, and just all-around great guy, and we think Nightfly aficionado, Mr. Jonathan Schneider. Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Excited. It's my first podcast ever to be on. Oh, oh good. Wow. Well, you'll always remember your first one. <laughs> Uh, we should remind people that uh, Jonathan is one of our beloved supporters of the podcast. And by that, I mean he chips in monthly with a dollar or two, which, of course, puts him at the front of the line to have uh, VIP access to become uh, a guest on the podcast, which he took us up on today, or to just dictate the content of a future episode. You get to jump in line. You get extra consideration, almost a gimme. Um, and if you would like to John, uh, join Jonathan as a supporter of the podcast, simply open the device. If you're not driving, you click to the bottom of the show notes and you will see Anchors Away support the podcast. And uh, I think you can contribute a dollar or five or 10 or whatever. And that helps us keep the lights on. John, I just got the bill for the uh, domain name renewal in the uh, hosting. So this is perfect time. Okay. Did it make you pass out when you saw the bell? <laughs> yeah, it did. <laughs> Shock. It did. Well, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast. Like I said, uh, you, uh, listeners can't see, but he's wearing a hoy polloi. That's official uh, Yacht Rock podcast uh, sanctioned merchandise. His t-shirt looks great. Um, welcome to the podcast again. And uh, tell us real quickly your own personal Yacht Rock origin story. Absolutely. So I like... I don't know how many listeners, because a lot. It seems like a lot of listeners that you are speaking to are maybe getting back into this music or discovering it. But I really kind of grew up with the music and never stopped listening to it. So from an early age in the '70s, I was recording things on the radio and would make mixtapes, and I was recording things like Kenny Loggins and Heart to Heart and the Doobie Brothers. And uh, so I, when I found the podcast, it just kind of opened me up, like you said, to like beyond the top 100 songs. Um, and so that's been great for me to understand. Like there's a whole other world out there than just what I do. Excellent. Good. Well, glad you uh, climbed aboard. Uh, we've been expecting you, John, any <laughs> other puns you want to kick in before we uh, head out on our maiden voyage for Jonathan? Oh, I thought I started us off bad, but it's gotten worse. So, <laughs> well, you guys are the Nightfly yeah. experts, John. So uh, talk us through this album and we're going to get Jonathan's perspective and some of the research he's done on it. Okay, he's going to set some of the cultural perspective on this. I'm just going to give a little bit of the details from a technical standpoint. It was uh, one of the first digitally recorded records, which is interesting, 32-track digital originally. They actually released it on cassette, CD, but also you could buy digital VHS or Betamax encoded tapes if you had, you know, if you were one of the million, one in a million that had one of those players that could play it back. But uh, it was... um, a highly respected album, of course. Uh, Grammys, what I was looking at, that it was nominated for like seven different awards, but then there were also additional personal awards. They pretty much, in terms of domination, uh, in terms of nominations, dominated the uh, 1983 Grammy Awards. 
Uh, and again, we got the same producer tandem. I always call this the continuity or the continuation of the Gaucho album. We still got Roger Nichols. Wendell is bigger and bolder in this. And we got uh, Gary Katz producing. And a lot of the same cats, which we'll get to as we go through. So that's sort of the technical side of things. And Jonathan, you were going to talk about who Donald Fagan was as a person, how this album is autobiographical in some ways, what you've learned about the cultural and all of that aspect that surrounds Donald's mind in the making of this record. Yeah. So I should preface, I was a history major in college, so I feel like I do have some skills for this, you know, my degree is coming in handy. All right, so yes, finally, finally, after all these years, you found a good application. Exactly. For it. Congratulations. Yeah. So let's just a quick rundown on Donald Fagan. Born January tenth, nineteen forty-eight, Passaic, New Jersey. It's not New York City, but it's like right there, kind of on the outskirts, so it's close by. His mother, just out of uh, interest, was a singer in the Catskills, um, and so there was some musical talent that uh, passed down to him, no doubt, although she became a housewife once she got to be of child-rearing age. And he didn't actually start playing piano until he was 11, but he didn't really like want to be formally trained, so he just listened to jazz records and tried to pick up licks. So that that's the thing about him. Now, I think to understand the album, because he says it's an autobiographical album, or it, it has a lot of like personal kind of stories for him, you need to kind of understand three things uh, about him and what was going on. So the first is his family life. He is a second generation American Jew, meaning his parents were born in the States, but his grandparents were not. And his dad was a GI and came out of the Great Depression. And they were really trying to live the American dream. So his dad, having seen all this suffering in the war, comes back, gets a job, becomes an accountant. And uh, buys a, wants to buy a house, so he moves them from close to New York City to the suburbia, which is supposed to be this paradise. And that was kind of what being an American was all about. Um, so almost like Fagan had this kind of predestined, oh, you're definitely going to go to college kind of life ahead of him. All right. The second is where he grew up. Um, so, I mean, he was like, on the outskirts of New Jersey, of, of New York City when he was young. And then they moved to this place called Kendall Park, which is a suburb. And Fagan had this, these family members that introduced him to jazz. And so he wanted to see these jazz players. So at like something like 10 or 11, he was going into New York City and going to clubs like the Village Vanguard and seeing Miles Davis and Bill Evans and Charles Mingus, like all these great people. And it was just a total pain to go all the way from this suburb in like New Jersey when they used to live so close by to get into the city. So the city was like this epitome of culture for him. And he like you can hear he romanticizes it in the Nightfly. Uh, this and the third thing was kind of this period of his youth. I mean, we're talking the mid 50s to the mid 60s. I mean, the, it was like a nuclear powder keg, essentially. Uh, the world, I mean, the, the communism was a was a, people were scared of it. They, we felt like we we're on the brink of nuclear war. And all these companies coming out of World War II also are making all these great new products. You know, there's all this industrialization and just want to sell all this stuff to people who have built these shiny new homes out in the suburbs. And uh, so 
those two things, those three things, excuse me, kind of come together to create this album. We can talk more about that when we get to the songs. Yeah, and I would add one other thing is that during his days of Steely Dan, of course, they went from New York, then spent time as sort of fish out of water in L.A., seeing how an entirely different type of living was done. So he's got all of that in his back pocket as he then comes back to New York eventually by the time they made Gaucho and then this album. So he's got this New York background, tried to live it up in California, so he's got his impressions of that, and all of it comes together to put him in the place where he is now. And of course, he was struggling with uh, Walter Becker in terms of writing, too, so it's led him to a pathway of saying, you know, I want to make my own record. That was sort of the context I was going to offer, because if I could bring it, like, one of the biggest fans of this album, besides the two of you, is listener Mike, who's my oldest brother, and the way he describes it is Steely Dan breaks up in 1981, I think, right? And the fans are despondent. They're like, this is the end of the world. Mm -hmm. And then 1983, this Nightfly album pops up out of nowhere. At least that's his telling. And now it's like Steely Dan lives again. And I know it's not Steely Dan, but... As John mentioned, it sort of is the philosophical extension of Gaucho. It's it's the follow-up to Gaucho in a lot of ways. We could talk through that. So this was sort of like the night fly. It's like the phoenix rising from the ashes yeah. of Steely Dan's yeah. demise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of people say also that like the lyrics are not as obtuse with, with the night fly uh, for all the songs. And it was a much like kind of nicer music than Steely Dan, which could be very sarcastic and sardonic i guess you could say as well there's another sar adjective that we could get in there <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i'm gonna break in here but no, no. Uh, <laughs> sarcastically I, yes it, it, it is interesting because as you're saying that i'm sort of thinking through some of the thematic stuff which we will get to but you're right i don't get the same you know impression when i just think of the lyrics of a song like new frontier or the Nightfly. you don't immediately think of all of those odd witticisms that we associate with steely dan we spent a lot of time when we did the Gaucho album on the, I don't think you uh, <laughs> framed it as the silliness of the lyrics. I'm right. framing it that way now. Yeah. There's not that. I think you're right. There's not that in this. It's the same brand of storytelling, I think. Um, just sort of visual phrases and vignettes, and it all comes together to paint a picture. But it's not like tongue-in-cheek as much. Uh, I wanted to ask either of you, because you mentioned this, John, do either of you know much about the that this was Wendell 2 on this record? Yeah. This was a new and improved version. Yes. Wendell was updated to uh, have more memory and operate at a higher bit rate. So theoretically, the sounds were better. I think a lot of the sounds may have been the same sample original sources, but they also would sample, they would bring in a drummer to play a part, play a groove, even maybe even play a whole track. And eventually what they would just do is end up extracting parts. And a lot of times they would then rebuild what they wanted on Wendell and then maybe use some of the fills. So we might see drummers, like uh, might see two drummers credited on a song and that would be that they got credit for whoever's samples were used plus if somebody came in and did fills on top now the other thing is that with wendell 2 i believe he was able to also sample larger phrases so even some of these fills may have been sampled boom which you wouldn't have had time on the original version to be able to do because the memory was so <laughs> slight shall, shall we say and one other thing that i learned when i was watching some of the stuff about roger nichols was that he said that donald fagan had this uncanny sense of time where he had to have in his mind he had to have perfect rhythm section 
hitting exactly where he expected them to hit because of the way that he would deliver the vocals. He felt that he had to be very, very precise in where they would land. And um, I, I don't hear him as this big rhythmic vocalist, but that is what they say. Roger Nichols says about him is that so that was the driving force. But why did I have to have a drum machine? Why did I, I feel it needed to be perfect? Because he thought that otherwise he couldn't sing against it. There's one there's one thing in this. this probably be edited out because I do think this is weeds, but his mom was um, apparently a master of like unique phrasing for vocals and back phrasing, which y'all probably know a lot more about than I do, which is like kind of delivering the phrase behind the beat. But when I think about right. Steely Dan lyrics, it's like, how in the world do you fit some of those things into the music? It makes perfect sense that he would have inherited such a skill for that. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Okay, and anything else about um, Fagan the person that gives context to Nightfly the album? Well, I think that it's important to understand that Fagan considers himself an outsider. Uh, he is, number one, he's Jewish. There are not a lot of Jews around him. He likes jazz music. Not a lot of kids, 10, 11, really are liking jazz. And he's kind of a cynical person. He kind of understands, like, maybe all this great stuff that these companies are pitching and this fight against good and, you know, good freedom and communism, evil. It's not so simple. And he's really much very, he's wise beyond his years. And so he's very introverted uh, as well. And I think that you can hear that in the music. I actually think I would have been really good friends with him <laughs> because I liked a lot of the same things that he liked. I don't think there's such a, a thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you may have been sympathetic. Yeah. Jewish as well, and I like jazz, so maybe I was on the same path, but I don't know. Right, yeah. yeah, maybe. Yeah, you were born too late. You could have been his bestie. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, well, why don't we get into the album itself, if you don't mind. Um, John, why don't you take us through the, a track by track, because this is okay. your baby, and I will just, for the record, just state that I like this album considerably more than Gaucho, for whatever reason. We can put a pin in that, and we'll come back at the end and unpack why. So, where do we start? Maybe side Maybe eight? side one. Let's start track one, side one, and this is IG why otherwise known as international geophysical year Now, this is one of those where we have two drummers credited. We've got uh, James Gadsden, probably the one that they use the samples for. And then there are some fills on top, which would be Jeff Percaro, I'm guessing. But definitely, almost all these tracks are Heavy Wendell, except I think the last one. So, uh, Jonathan, what, what do you want to say about this one? So, IGY refers to International Geophysical Year, which was actually a thing. It was from it was July, mid-July... 1957 to December 1958. And it was basically like this thawing of the Cold War, just enough for all these countries to share scientific information in a variety of areas. Um, Sputnik was launched during this time period. I didn't know that that was actually a part of it. Um, mm. And so there's a lot of excitement about science and its capabilities. And he's talking about spandex and the lyrics. And he mentions that like whatever the new product was of the day, his parents were buying whether that was like polyester clothes or carpet. Uh, he, he says, like, my house smelled of lemon pledge when I was a kid. 
<laughs> as did ours. ours. Did too. <laughs> <laughs> I had polyester clothes too. Ooh. So interesting. So he's sort of establishing the milieu of the time and the album with the song. Would you guys say that? I would. And, and even I, I hear this groove. Standing tough under stars and stripes, we can tell this dream's inside. As being a very definitive Donald Fagan groove. More so than a Steely Dan groove. This is this sort of shuffle thing he comes back to quite a bit in his solo work. And to me, this defines, oh, yeah, there's that is Fagan's sound right there. And to that point, um, because you're talking rhythm section, essentially, in some ways, um, do you either of you know that the bassist is Anthony Jackson here, who mm-hmm. I don't see popping up on prior Steely Dan work, maybe because we're on the uh, East Coast now. But did you know, John, he is uh, credited with the, de- the development of the modern six-string bass, which he refers to as a contrabass guitar? No, I did not yeah. know that. Oh. Great player, though. How many strings on that? Uh, on a six-string? I think yeah. there's five or more. Six. Okay. Yeah. Um, but to your point, the one thing that is reminiscent of earlier Steely Dan stuff is you got the long groove out at the end where it's like, this song is six minutes, but the song really ended at four minutes and 10 seconds. Yeah. And I wonder about that thing he calls the synth blues harp. That's how it's credited on there. It's obviously a synth sounding like a harmonica, but I all wonder, because this is what, 1982, they were developing these things called breath controllers, which you would play the synth, but you'd have this thing in your mouth that you would blow into, and the harder you blew, the louder and brighter the sound would get, almost mimicking a horn or a harmonica or anything. So if you were playing a wind instrument, it would allow you to give that sort of uh, ramping up of you know getting louder and brighter at the same time, and if he's got some pitch bend stuff going on there, so I'm not sure if he can do it with a controller on the synth because if one's hand is on the pitch bend wheel, another's on the keys. You know, I'm thinking maybe I'm, he had something in his mouth to do that, but it's a really cool sound. It is. Well, John, then take us to track two. This is not a quote unquote hit. No, we're going on to Greenflower Street, which is probably titled, uh, probably a nod to Green Dolphin Street, which would be a classic jazz standard. And uh, Jonathan, what do you got? Yeah, so this one is a mystery to me. Uh, I, I, it, it is, I think, the most steely Danish of all the songs on the album, just in terms of the subject matter, which seems to relate to some type of Asian woman with which some non-Asian person has a relationship with either personal or business. We don't really know. An interracial relationship would be totally looked down upon at that time. And there's also a backhanded reference to heroin or opium, like being cut with kerosene, which feels very Steely Danish to me. Mm. And the, <laughs> the protagonist of the song has some trouble perhaps with this Asian woman's brother or business manager, something like that. Uh, And so it's very kind of obscure in terms of what this is all about. And that's why I say it really does remind me of Steely Dan. Maybe part of the reason is going back to uh, this album was recorded partially in New York and partially in L.A., 
the uh, personnel to, on this one suggests more of a West Coast personnel because you got Chuck Rainey on base. Um, you're using the uh, roads, and you got Greg Filligades on. So, John, are you hearing more Steely Dan in this one than the- I am, and especially lyrically, like like Jonathan said. But you know, I got to say at this point, since you mentioned him, that. Uh, Villain Gaines is like the unsung hero on this record. He plays so many piano and keys parts, and every time you hear something great, you look up and say, well, who? wow, who's playing keys on this one? It's Villain Gaines. I did the same thing. The other thing, just which we haven't gotten to yet, but I'm sure we will, is that this record has a ton of Larry Carlton on it, which we'll get to coming up here. But that's one of the, every time I looked up, I'm like, I didn't even have to look up, because I'm like, that's just classic Larry Carlton. So, all right, well, then if nobody has anything else, I just want to point out to the, the or point out the outstanding way that the song ends. So just clip to the end here and give us the uh, play out, and then we'll move on to Ruby Baby. <laughs> When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is your baby, baby. John, track three. I've got a girl. Yeah, people, a lot of people like to discard this one for some reason because it's a cover, I suppose. But I think he did a great job with this. And um, this What is, is it a cover of? It's Ruby Baby. I know, but whose version is he covering? Uh, it was done a couple times before them. I know the Beach Boys did it, but when the Beach Boys did it on their party album, it was a cover. Uh, who was the original on this? Do you know, Jonathan? I do. It was actually okay. the ah. Drifters, Drifters and Dion and the Belmonts. Okay. Right. So it's See, a Libra and Stoller tune. This one goes back to Donald's immensely perfect sense of timing because this is the infamous song where he had two keyboard players playing on the same keyboard at the same time because he wanted a different groove in the left hand than in the right hand. And nobody's brain could do it. So the only way to accomplish that was to have Omardian and Fillingains play the same keyboard at the same time, with each trying to navigate different feels. Yeah, one playing the left hand, obviously, one playing playing the right hand, right? That must have been cozy. <laughs> yeah. Whew. The things you do uh, at a uh, Fagan led session. Yeah. Um what was wasn't there a story behind the crowd noise at the end? I know we're not I'm not gonna jump to the end, but I have that note because you you mentioned the Beach Boys. Wasn't there something Well, I've only made the connection that because the version I know of it was from the Beach Boys party album, which of course had party sound effects in the background, giving you the illusion that they were actually playing live in the studio with other people around. Um, But there is a story about they tried to record somebody's party 
they hung a microphone and record somebody's party to try and get actual party noise. And then they, they realized that eh, it wasn't as great of an idea as we thought. And then went in and created their own false party like the Beach Boys did. Interesting. Jonathan, what do you know about Ruby Baby? Right. It was, they tried to record stu- at Studio 54, which was next to the oh, recording yeah. studio, automated sound. Uh, this guy named Jerry Rubin, he was having a party and it didn't work out. So they did a party in there and apparently everybody got drunk, mm. had a good time. Uh, but there actually is something that I discovered, and I think it's on this song, about the piano being slightly out of tune and Fagan loved the piano part so much. He made everybody else re-record their parts to match the tuning of the (laughs) piano. I think it's on this track. Well, it is true that this album was done a track at a time built up. This was not a case where they put a group of players in a studio together and caught a take. They built this one track at a time. So not only do you have to go to a a session and uh, be involved in the pursuit of perfection, now you have to be um, chasing imperfection as well. So yeah. it's like, how do, yeah. how do you, right? Because he wants uh, Phil and Gaines and, and Obardian to play slightly out of two, two, uh, time, and now they got the players playing out of tune. What the heck? Um, and one more, one more point about uh, this. I think like a lot of people ask, like, well, why is this on the album? Because it is a cover. But this is totally classic music that he would have been hearing around him at the time. And it's also kind of goes back to that. He's a little bit of an outsider, and he's trying to get the girl... He never gets the girl. It's kind of unrequited love. So it makes perfect sense. And what you'll notice, and because the vocals are so well stacked on this one, and we'll get to Maxine, which is another example, but to keep in mind as you're listening that there's no one else credited as vocals on pretty much any of these tunes. And when you listen, you can tell it's all Donald. And we don't think of Donald as a singer, as somebody who's going to spend hours and hours in front of a microphone, layering parts, doing new takes, lay, you know, harmonies. He he seems like the guy that wants to put down the vocal because he has to, but he really wants to sit back and kind of run the show, right? That That's my impression of him. I don't know if that's true. Well, I don't picture him sitting in a booth just laboring over loops of vocals and top of vocals, but that's what he did on this record. You can hear it. That's what Michael McDonald is for, right? right? Or, or, <laughs> or the use of female vocals, right? Exactly. Well, I do notice Valerie Simpson appears periodically because you can hear a female. There voice are some in places. There. Yes. Yep. Yep. Um, I just wanted to point out because we may not ever get back to it. How much on this track and throughout the entire album, I love the Brecker brothers who appear. So Michael Brecker on tenor sax, John. Maybe you could give people a little bit of a taste yeah. of his tenor sax, and then Randy plays trumpet and flugelhorn. So when you hear the whole horn section, that's basically the Brecker brothers. And I think that's where some of the people that, going back to our discussion about the second arrangement and all of that, that people theorize that there would be horns on it. I think they hear that, you know, gaucho sound as well as where this album went and they just made the connection because there's so many nice horn parts on this that aren't just stabs here and there. They're, you know, classically um, arranged 
horn parts like you would in a jazz horn section that are sort of following nice melodies and things. They're not just stingers, you know what I mean? So it's a very jazz horn approach, and I think that's what people thought that would probably have ended up on second arrangement, something similar to what we've been hearing on this first side. Well, let's close the side then, shall we, gentlemen? Because uh, we have sort of a sonic uh, change of pace here with something that's considerably more jazzy, I would say, which is going to be a good uh, environment for Carlton to do his thing. This is track four on side one, Maxine. Some say that we're reckless. They say we're much too young. Tell us to stop before we Got to hold out till graduation. Try to hang on. So we'll start with you, Jonathan. What do you know about Maxine? Well, I know that this is my favorite song on the album. Excellent. Uh, just from a vocal and instrumentation perspective. Um, you remember I said he's an outsider. And this song just does a great job of painting this rich portrait of this person who is totally wise beyond his years and he's dreaming of this life in New York City or taking vacations with this girl that maybe he's meeting at some point to Mexico and it's just exactly who he was at the time and which is why I said I think I could have been friendly with him because (laughs) he was an outsider Uh, but the other thing I did learn about this and I think I knew about it this reminded me that I'd forgotten about it, as y'all say. Mel Torme did a cover mm. of this song, as well as a couple others from this album. And mm. uh, they're out there on YouTube. Wow, Mel Torme has the greatest nickname in all of music, man. The Velvet Fog. I mean, come yes. on. Does it get any smoother than The Velvet Fog? No. But, you know, speaking of smooth, listening to this one, this was uh, one of those headphone listens, going back to what I was just saying about the vocals. There is a lot of Donald in here. These are lots of layers. Put on the headphones, listen to that. You're hearing all Donald harmonize with himself, and he's taken on this sound of the like the four man vocal groups of that era of the fifties or, you know, four freshmen, letterman, people like that. And this is definitely a nod to that. And as you said, you, something you would not expect from a, from a Donald Fagan. Um, Tell you what, there's a nice Brecker solo on this one. Nice Brecker well, tenor solo. Yeah. I had great stuff from Brecker too. So let's get a taste of that. All right, and the, I wanted to mention, of course, being the lone bass player on the, the uh, call here, that Marcus Miller makes an appearance for the first time on Maxine. So he's playing with Ed Greed, the drummer, the rhythm section on this one. Yeah, Marcus is on a few of these tracks, especially when you get to side two, but none of them do they sound like a typical Marcus part, that's for sure. No, but as they say on the podcast, put a pin in that. Hmm. Well, as it turns out, we had provisions, but not lots of beer, because we have to take a break. Hmm. Beer break. So far, so good? <laughs> I notice you keep coming back to that that beer and provisions <laughs> line, as if there's any discussion about whether we have beer or provisions. I mean, that, that is a given. Yes. Especially the beer part. But when you run out you know, halfway through the album, and you've got to stop, you've got to ask your guests... 
listener Jonathan in this case to pause and come back next week, that's a problem. Yeah, I'm sure he'll be here. Yeah, he's doing a good job so far. You got to yes. like when the guest comes prepared. Yes. He's got the notes. He's got the goods. Very well done. This is how it's done, listeners so-and-so. Yeah, so if you want to be part of the game, you got to leave your shame. I don't know. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, let me take it from here. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, if I'm not mistaken, where we're taking it is into a uh, preliminary lightning round to get us from side A to side B. Shall we do it? Zowie. Zowie, indeed. Yep. All right. Well, I'm going to hold off on my uh, Nightfly-inspired lightning round material um, because this is sort of an interim break here. Do you have lightning round, uh, or excuse me, Nightfly-inspired lightning round? Y- yes, because it's all Fagan stuff. Okay. Fagan-related. So why yeah. don't you start us off at Found at Sea? Okay, Found at Sea. One of um, my favorite Fagan solo records beyond Nightfly is Sunken Condos, his much more recent one. Mm. It's still several years old at this point. But he went through a period there. I know a lot of people seem to really like Kamakiriad. Is that how it's said? And uh, Morph the Cat. Mm -hmm. Um, Those two never really connected with me. I I see the goodness in them. I see the sophistication. I see a lot of those things. But they come off as real sterile Hmm. to me. And I don't know why that is. But I feel like... To some degree, Fagan went back to some ways the sound of Nightfly. Uh, stuff was made uh, a lot more natural sounding. I know Nightfly wasn't, but you know, we, we talked about how it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to look at, I was curious to what the people thought of Sunken Condos when it came out. So again, I go Rolling to Stones, go to Rolling Stone. <laughs> they did give it four and a half stars. Wow. Yes. And, and there's some great stuff in here that I grabbed out of the write-up. They called it a polished-up nugget of jazzy Sanford and Son funk. <laughs> <laughs> and this Steely Dan-style set is proudly retro in sound, which is kind of what I was saying. Nostalgia remains suspect at best to this 64-year-old. Slinky Thing, one of those songs, uh, snarks about a burnt-out hippie clown. Probably talking about some picture of himself, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he does a cover of an Isaac Hayes tune called Out of the Ghetto. Now, only Fagan would pull <laughs> that out, right? True. So, uh, there he said, Fagan gets down with a wink. Uh, the band, especially guitarist John Harrington, who I believe is a Berkeley guy, is predictably hot and smooth. So, Ooh. there you go. There's the smooth yeah. word. Fagan's voice is oily sweet as ever. On the new breed, the singer dismisses himself as Jurassic Park as compared to a dot com competitor. But to this day, no one, this is the best part, no one does booby-trapped boutique pop better. <laughs> booby-trapped boutique pop. No argument here. Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing, so. I don't either. Maybe we got our own genre we can do. Yes. All right. Want to do a podcast on it? Nah. Okay. Um, well, here's what I found at sea. I found it on uh, the soft shores of Yacht Rock, Miami. Oh, nice. And I asked you about this. Are you familiar with this outfit called Charisma? K-A-R-I-Z-M-A. Uh-huh. You, well, what do you know about Charisma? Much? Well, I <laughs> no, I have listened before. I know that, like Lukather was involved in Landau, I think. Uh, a lot of these hot cats yeah. have been part of it. 
I don't know. It's always the same people every time, though. It's not. It's evolved over the years. Yeah. So, but I'm going to hit you with the 1983 track. So at this time, the lineup is David Garfield, who I think is essentially the band's sort of leader. Okay. Uh, you got Carlos Vega on drums, Lenny Castro on percussion, Dean Cortez, Dean Parks, Steve Tavillion. I don't know him on sax. Um, Joined by the likes of Steve Lukather, hmm? Tim Pierce, oh. Ernie Watts, hey. Neil Larson, David Page, Jeff Picaro, uh, Tom Scott, Whew. so uh, and also Michael Landau by 1984. <laughs> How do we not know more about this charisma thing? I think, as memory serves, that this stuff was only released in Japan back in the day. That could and be. And struggled to even get onto U.S. streaming services uh, services. Uh, till maybe just recently. Okay. Well, especially when it's got the title of this track, which I'm going to play for you. Oh, Tell me boy. if you're not hearing a little Toto in I've Been Played the Fool Again. Who? Yeah, man. Toto Brass, uh, Lukather, and Jeff Percaro kicks. Classic Toto sound. Yeah, does man. it sound like Toto? Although it that's sure does. not Percaro, though. No? That is, that's uh, Carlos Vega. Wow. At least that's what it's credited. Okay. Kind of doing his little best Jeff Percaro imitation. Yeah. So. Excellent. That's, uh, that stuff smokes. That whole album is good. The 1983 record. So, very good. Ooh. All right. That almost could have been a buried treasure, but now. Yeah, but I already have? had something for buried treasure. Oh, sort of. Figured. Um, so we're talking about Nightfly, yes, uh, which has a title track called Nightfly. Mm-hmm. I'm going way off of the map for my buried treasure, at least from that topic, and going to Night Shift. Oh, by the Commodores, oh baby, the Love. 1985 Night Shift album. Yeah, um, and I'm gonna hit you with the title track, just like we did with Nightfly. So here's Night Shift. Finest rhythm tracks underscoring those vocals. Man, it is so slick. Just love that. The drumming on that and percussion blows me away. If you like tight snares, you're going to like that. Well, listen to the personnel here. So I, I always thought of it, you know, you're just going to have your regular old Joes, uh, you know, from Commodores minus Lionel. But you've got Vinnie Kelyuda, Paulina da Costa. Uh, the horns are brought to you by Gary Grant, Jerry Hay, and boys. Jeff Lorber's on here, Paul Jackson Jr., um, John Robinson on drums, Neil Steubenhaus on bass. I mean, this is a, almost a Yacht Rock record. Wow. How did that happen? I don't know. Well, see, what they did is they called all these people and asked them if they'd like to come to a session, and then they play, pay him a fee, and then the oh, producer- Oh, yeah. Marty Walsh told us about that. Yes. 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 I've heard of that. Uh, great tune. Don't, isn't that a good tune, though? Did you kind of forget Oh, my about gosh. It? Dude, I just got done telling you that oh, yeah. I melt every time I hear it. That's right. That's you right. See? All right. What do you have for Buried Treasure? My Buried Treasure is another Fagin tune, another one from Sunken Condos. Um, we'll probably end up talking a little more about the lyric content of Fagin stuff. And um, I'm going to save that maybe for the second episode. But I did. I, I love the lyrics of this song. And it's 
it's so typical Fagan because you're not sure if he's talking about reality as he sees it, some amalgamation of reality and some future that he had envisioned or some past, or he's taking something out of context and pl- applying it so that he can give a nod to something, but intentionally using it out of context, almost like Mount Belzoni. And, mm-hmm. uh, yep. Right. So, but this is called memorabilia from sunken, sunken condos. And it's just telling the story about this guy who's got like a pawn shop or something and all the interesting things you find there. That's about right. Yeah, and a room right off the kitchen, there's an old gas centrifuge, a color film of Castle Bravo. Girl, you know that shot was huge. <laughs> there's a crate full of lead-lined pipes. Is there? A photo of laughing Navy types <laughs> on the island east of the Carolines, a lovely island. All right, let's hit it. Let's play a little. Have you seen the memorabilia? Tokyo memorabilia. Souvenirs, a perfect doom in the back of Louis the Kansas. Have you seen the memorabilia? Tokyo memorabilia. Souvenirs, a perfect doom in the back of Louis the Kansas. So there you go. Well, it's like kind of like yeah. it brings to mind what Jonathan was saying about the Nightfly album is that he's got this ability, even when he's not being silly, to like just paint the picture with these vignettes. In this case, this is more silly, like Gaucho. Yeah, but you don't even have to know exactly what he means by a photo of laughing Navy types. You can kind of get a picture. You, the, I pictured it. You know, all of it. Create yeah. a lead lined pipes. Why is he referencing that? Who knows? It doesn't matter. But you picture it, and you can you can visualize this guy's room. Yes, sir. All right, what do you got for off the map? I'm going straight up to the Isaac Hayes tune, Out of the Ghetto. I took you out of the ghetto. I took you out of the ghetto. I took you out of the ghetto. But I could not get that ghetto out of you. <laughs> he services the song well. He does, he does. Yeah, that's nice. Comes off. That is funky. All right. Uh, so off the map for me, I'm going. To, uh, I'm going to reach into the viewer mailbag. Mm. Mail's in. This uh, missive comes to us from Captain Hugh from Yacht Rocket wait, Radio. Wait, wait. This what missive? Yes. Wow. Epistle? I don't know. Oh my goodness, you and your vocabulary. <laughs> You've been doing the crossword lately. <laughs> yes. What's a four-letter word for? No, I forget it. Uh, okay. Captain Hugh sends us this. You may have known of this, but uh, Glenn Hughes of Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. So um, there were some demos from the 90s that just got put out as bonus tracks on an album reissue. I know nothing of this. This is news. <laughs> we're breaking news again. They're surprisingly yachty. Oh, no way. So he sent me two. I'm going to let you pick. Which one do you want to pick? One or two? Two. Here's two. Here is Glenn Hughes with She Knows. So that's from the 90s. That is surprising sound. It's from the guy who brought you Deep Purple in Black Sabbath. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I don't hear much of that in there. No. It's closer to the marina than anything else. Yeah. All right. Well, that's part one. I guess we're going to invite people back to part two. We are. And I know how to do it this time. Okay. How? Ahoy. Ahoy. 